0: Need to improve developer productivity and enable collaboration between low-code and pro-code users? Use Corio, an integration platform as a service that offers low-code cloud-native engineering for professional developers. You focus on the code while we take care of everything else. Try Corio for free today at wso2.com forward slash Corio. Hi folks, this week's episode is a double feature. First, I talked with Mark Rees, the CTO of Zero, about their organization and how they've grown through COVID and how smart tech starts with smart people. Then I spoke to Heather DeSantis from Publicity for Good about, among other things, how building trust with people exponentially increases productivity. Enjoy. Good day, folks. This is Shane Hasty for the InfoQ Engineering Culture Podcast. I'm sitting down across not too many miles for a change with Mark Rees. Mark is the CTO of Zero, and we happen to both be in New Zealand, but we didn't get together in person for this, which is an opportunity missed. Mark, welcome. Thanks for taking the time to talk to us.
1: Oh, it's great to talk to you, Shane. Yeah, it's like, I don't know how many k's it is. It's probably, probably not too many kilometers distance between where you are and where I am, but it's great to be talking to you.
0: Tell us a little bit about who's Mark and who's 0
1: I'm Mark Reese. I'm the Chief Technology Officer for Xero. So Xero is an accounting software as a service platform. And so we provide a set of products to accountants and bookkeepers and small businesses around the world to help them manage their finances, you know, prepare their tax returns, invoice their customers, you know, generally manage their finances, which started in Wellington, which is a great, great thing for New Zealand. But now we sell software as a service to around 2.5 million businesses around the world in Australia, UK, the US. And so my job at Xero is I lead broadly all the technology teams and the technology strategy. So do a lot of work on engineering, culture and direction as well.
0: Zero is considered to be one of the unicorns in New Zealand's economy. You certainly stand out in terms of the size and doing stuff internationally. What happened? What made it happen?
1: It's a great story. So Xero was founded by a Wellingtonian, Rod Jury, almost 14 years ago, I think now. He's a serial entrepreneur. You know, the story is that he was working with this accountant, preparing some tax returns and saw the opportunity of this new wave of technology cloud to smooth the connection between him as a small business and his accountant. And, you know, I saw this new technology as a great opportunity to transform that and was really bold and kind of moving quickly. And 0 has been some really great technology innovation, but also some bold moves in terms of listing just after two years in the New Zealand Stock Exchange. And as you said, one of the rare technology companies to launch on the market like that. And, you know, it's grown really quickly. Went offshore quickly into the Australian market, the UK market, and the US market, and really it's just grown frenetically since then.
0: As the CTO, you have been deeply involved in that growth, and I'm guessing that growth involves scaling up lots of teams and so forth. How's that worked?
1: It's one of the highlights of my career, actually, like the challenge of scaling the technology, but actually these days more about scaling the teams and the way we work. And the one thing I like most about it is A, the time you spend working with people on real kind of impactful problems, but the fact that it's constantly changing, right? You think you've got a solution that you roll out and it's great for the point in time that you are, but because we're growing so quickly, a year later, you know, you kind of have to revisit those assumptions you had about the way you work and kind of update them for the reality that you are. So you're constantly forced to kind of be quite introspective and think about the assumptions you have about the best way to structure these teams, to get them to work effectively, what matters. So it's really fascinating. And we'll talk about COVID, but COVID is like a real point in time to sort of shot on the arm to to challenge some of those assumptions as well. But yeah, I love that. And, you know, we have a decent-sized engineering team now. Product engineering is about 1,800 people spread all around the world, but, you know, centered in Wellington, Auckland and Australia, Canada and the US. So getting those teams working well together is a really fascinating problem, study of humanity, study of communication, study of getting the best out of people and setting up a system that brings out the best in them and enables them to work well together. And we're really students of that, I think. You know, there's some great emerging thinking that we follow carefully, you know, ideas like the stuff that came out of team topologies and the lean movement and accelerate. Those kind of thinkings really, we pay a lot of attention to that and the implications for how you structure teams. And the impact it has on the technology you build as well, which is kind of fascinating.
0: We hear something about Conway's law frequently today, and that's 40 years old. I know. Yeah. But it's such a powerful way of understanding. You mentioned team topologies, Accelerate and Lean, but what are some of the things that at a practical level you've done to bring these global teams aligned, I suppose?
1: There's a whole set of things, actually. I can give you a few examples. One, an engineering-centric example is really just, we've done a lot of work around engineering standards. And I have to say, actually, I was skeptical about the proposition of whether this was a good idea to start with, but we've got a really kind of experimental approach in terms of how we launched it. It's really just writing down a really clear description of the way we wanted things to work across all our teams. You know, there was massive engagement from our engineering team. I think we had like about 50, 60% of the engineers in the company contributed and commented on this document. It's lot like the organization's size and relief when we can reduce so much friction by just kind of stating with clarity about the way you want things to work. We've done that and we've done a series of other standards about how we want engineering and software release and all those kind of things to work. And that just removes a bunch of friction in the way teams work. We want a lot of autonomy in our teams, but I think there's kind of different types of freedom in the space. There's a, there's a freedom that's created because no one said the way it should be. And actually that kind of freedom creates no business value or real autonomy for teams. It's just there's a lack of a standard, you know, like how you approach logging or, you know, kind of some really low grade things that when you say the way you want it to work, you reduce all this friction that actually frees teams up, allows them to focus on high value things. So that was a really good kind of intervention we made in a system that's actually really well adopted and had a really positive impact. The other thing we did was around information management. When you have a team distributed around the world and you know it's fine when you're all in one place and it's a small team, everyone knows each other and they know who to go to to talk and ask about something. But as you get bigger and you scale managing the connections between people and that information becomes really important. And so we created this platform called Kutahi, which is a Maori word about together. And so it's basically a service catalogue, but also product and people catalogue as well. And so we've, over the last year, we've had an OKR about driving adoption to that and getting all the components and the teams and, you know, run books about how to troubleshoot things all into this one platform. So people know where to go to find out if something exists and the team to talk to if they want to find some detail about it. So that's kind of a couple of things we've done to really help these distributed
0: teams work together. So let's explore COVID. We're at the bottom of the world. New Zealand's done pretty well in terms of coming through it, but you've got teams all over the place. And even in New Zealand, we had to go and work from home. What happened and how did that go?
1: As you know, probably Wellington and New Zealand in general has been extremely lucky in terms of the impact COVID's had on us. And our business has been really strong and successful during that period. And in terms of staff, we have really different experiences. Like we have teams in Denver, Manchester, and the UK and stuff who have been in lockdown for a long, long period of time. And there's definitely a set of challenges associated that we can talk to. Initial response was like probably most organisations was really conservative financially and also a real focus on taking care of the people as the top priority. I mean, a lot of anxiety, a lot of uncertainty about what was going to happen. I think one one leadership lesson for me is that those moments like COVID, you feel a real duty to step up as a leader. And one thing I did is I drove a lot of connection with my teams. And that comes from a good place in terms of wanting to be present for those people. But I think as COVID went on longer, you realize that actually that connection, which is good, actually has a price as well. And you end up spawning online meetings for your staff. It could creates stress because people are spending so much time on calls to connect with one another. So they had to learn from that and kind of balance that out. Because you know the connection is really important, but you have to be alive to the fact that this kind of online environment is quite taxing on people. And I think there's some stuff to be learned about how to do that well. But we actually have found the transition to COVID in terms of the way our teams have worked has gone really well. The teams that had good practice and good tools and were mature, kind of well-functioning teams, they didn't miss a beat. They did really well. And teams that are sort of earlier in that journey around their practice, we've kind of helped to support them. But overall, I think we've gone through it really well and definitely haven't reverted back to the way we were before. So we have much lower attendance in the offices. We're basically giving all our teams the freedom to choose how they want to work. So we have a whole set of mixture of scenarios, some working largely remotely, agreeing a day to come into the office and connect. And so that's really positive, actually. Like I mentioned before, it really challenges some assumptions. I mean, we were largely building our engineering org around a small number of co-located centers. So, this something other companies were ahead of us on. Probably that doesn't matter as much as maybe I thought it would. It mattered, and that these fully remote teams are actually really effective and really enabling. I mean, that's going to be a bigger part of our future, and it really unlocks a lot of talent. One of the biggest benefits from COVID is just what we call the sort of brain gain. As you know, historically, New Zealand suffers from the cycle where our post-university people from New Zealand may travel overseas, they do their OE, they go to Europe, they go around the world, and a fair number of them stay over there. And we call that the brain drain, historically. And so what we experienced through COVID was the inverse effect, where because the environment was good in New Zealand, lots of really talented experienced New Zealanders and Australians returned home. And so we've managed to hire some amazing talent through that. In fact, you know, three or 400 of them. And that's been really great. We're really great in terms of people with fantastic experience from scale product and tech companies, you know, the Googles and the Stripes and those companies around the world who have come home and really lifted our capability. Because of that, I've been in Zero for around almost eight years. And every year we struggle to hire our product design target. Designers, the only time that we've achieved that is through covid because of that kind of insular of talent. So that's been really positive, actually. I mean, I think we're still kind of unpacking implications of COVID, but overall really positive.
0: In this disparate world where some teams are coming into the office and teams are choosing to work in the way that works best for them, how do you keep alignment and motivation?
1: I think the key to that is... Of course, it's great people leadership, right? That's the key and probably the greatest amplifier and driver of alignment and clarity and consistency in an organization is people leadership and leadership in general. And that's something that we really lean into. And I think this distributed working environment probably does demand more of people leaders in terms of their ability to kind of manage people and understand them without seeing them every day. So that's been a big part of how we focus on that. We have structures in terms of how we communicate and measure strategy and strategy execution through OKRs. So that that helps with strategy cascade and communication as well. But I think our leaders, their ability to communicate and do a good job of coaching and leading their staff is really critical. And it's something that our CEOs really champions and we've leaned into. I have a habit of writing a weekly email, kind of on an eclectic series of topics. And I did that before COVID and I do it because... Even when we didn't have so many remote teams, we had teams just spread around the world. It's a great way to be present, you know, like as a kind of senior leader, to connect regularly, to share what you're thinking about, to share views on a whole range of topics. Just that kind of regular connection with these teams around the world is really important. And that was really important during COVID as well. I mean, I really enjoy it because I find the time to reflect and write is actually a good way to keep my thinking straight. And that covers a whole range of topics. I've been sort of writing a series on kind of learning from mistakes and stuff, which is not a new insight, but it's a good thing to reinforce in a product company that's focused on innovating. But just a whole range of topics of that kind of communication and presence, I think, is a really good way to create connection and clarity as well. We're also using video and that is more so as well. We've done that as a company. In fact, we've got our company kickoff next week. And so we would typically do those in the past as big meetings and, you know, the big centers, but it's all a TV show this year. That's not really my natural habitat, but it was quite a fun experience. We have to go into a TV studio. This one was in Kilburnie of all places and air mic and, you know, lapel mic and a big auto queue and cameras. But I think it's just, that's kind of part of the reality of the new way we're operating is that
0: those mechanisms
1: are really important.
0: For the leader who doesn't have those skills and competencies, how do they build them? That's a really good question. I expect
1: my managers and managers to kind of be working really closely with their teams, their leaders and coaching them and helping develop those skills. I think there's a whole bunch of stuff that you sort of can learn and develop your style through trial and error. It's a mixture of kind of that coaching from your manager. We provide a set of learning and development, managing at zero courses to help people provide some base skills around it and coaching as well. I think there's an emerging amount of really great books and literature on the space that you can drill into. I really like the Will Larson books, the new one, the staff engineer book, and you know his other books, which is really good. So I think we encourage our staff to kind of read that thinking as well. So it's really a combination of things. I just encourage people to be really authentic to themselves. Like I think there are some commonalities to being an effective leader, but there's not one template. You have to kind of embrace who you are authentically and people will use their personality to kind of land that well. Not everyone has the same approach. Some people are really kind of happy with the rah rah group presentations, but there's also a subset of leaders who are super effective one on one or in smaller groups. And so I don't think there's a one size fits all approach then. It's more just discovering your authentic style as well through a bit of trial and error.
0: The trial and error means it's got to be safe to do error. And now we touch into psychological safety, which is a really important topic, but it's almost become a buzzword today. How does it, it that play everything. out at zero?
1: You know, the Google work and the New York Times article written by it and Eppinson's book kind on of Fearless Organizations, which kind of championed all that. I think it has impacted many organizations around the world, including Zero. And so and that's something that we try and pay attention to and try and through diagnostics one of the attributes of looking at our teams and kind of understanding where they are. I mean, I think it can be a buzzword, but also true <laughs> at the same time, right? Like these things, they get lots of traction and lots of coverage. They can become a kind of cliche of themselves, but I think that doesn't necessarily mean they're not true. And I definitely am one who believes that that kind of psychological safety is absolutely essential for a healthy company, a product company like Zero, especially a fast growing company. Products all about taking risk. And being okay with the fact that you get a bunch of stuff wrong, I think if you're not doing that, you're kind of fooling yourself on it. So building that into our culture, you know, I think there's a lot of leadership involved in that in terms of creating the space and the permission to people to talk about their failure. It's like culture. There's not one thing you do to create a psychologically safe organization. There's many things you have to do. And they range from, depending on the context, like the culture you bring to postmortems about incidents. To the way you talk about and celebrate success but also kind of acknowledge failure as well i think all those things add up to increasing the psychological safety in the organization and it's something we try and talk to our leaders about as well but it's really important to role model from the top of the organization i think when you, when you talk about failure it's really important to kind of acknowledge the different types of failure as well like there's the process-based stuff where someone misses a step and you know, maybe you have to diagnose that and look at the run books or the checklists you have to remediate it. And then there's a bunch of failure that comes from complexity and the, the complex your systems. Are and I think there's a different set of thinking and strategies around how you deal with those, and especially in technical jobs. And then there's the, I know some people call it intelligent failure. That's a bit of a funny name, but the failure that comes from taking risks and trying to build new edgy things. And I think treating them differently is really important as well. And we try and think about them differently and also try and drive that test, learn, refine product side of things quite aggressively.
0: You mentioned diagnostics. What are they? It's a slightly funny word for something that's
1: pretty straightforward. I think it's just when I say diagnostics, I mean surveys or tests that you can apply to a group of people to kind of get a sense check or a pulse check on where things are in an the organization. There's actually a really good one in the Fearless Organizations book, which is a really great book, which is the academic research behind psychological safety. She talks about some series of questions you can ask in a survey. is a scientifically established way to measure psychological safety. But there's also lots of other ways. I mean, that's one of the most challenging parts of my job is that it's a relatively big team. It's really hard to see, you know, visualize the system. You're tasked with making these decisions that are really consequential. But as we all, all know, and there's plenty of books about this, like digital workers' very hard to visualize. And so actually seeing these teams, seeing where they are, seeing their health, visualizing that system so you can make informed decisions about what you should do is actually really hard. That's a real challenge. So these health checks or diagnostics, or we call them the turn the lights on, it's just the project name, to kind of apply to teams to get an assessment of where they are, their health, et cetera, is really important. Otherwise, you're just kind of operating in a data-free environment when you're making decisions about change you should make and how you're tracking on the work you're doing to improve the way you work.
0: Thanks for that. So what's next?
1: There's a whole bunch of stuff I mean, we're continuing to grow quickly. And so there's always the new wave of challenges from getting bigger and how you organize things and how you change the way you work. I read the Atomic Habits book, the James Clare book, which talks about habits and how important they are and sort of the way you work as an individual. And that metaphor stuck with me as a way to think about zero. Like We have to kind of systematize a lot of stuff because as you get bigger and more complex, You kind of have to push them down into the system of the way you work. Otherwise, it just becomes too many things to check off to do. So you have to try and build out that kind of fabric and automation in the terms of the way you work with technology, but also the way you do everything. So there's a big focus on how we think about that. We have been purchasing more companies. And so that's a whole new challenge, culturally, technologically, commercially in terms of how you evaluate and how you integrate those. So we've been doing a lot of thinking around that. You know, people-wise, it's really interesting, but technologically, it's really interesting as well. How do you measure the cost of technical diversity? How do you think about effective integration? So we're doing a lot of thinking about that. And also we're doing a lot of work around artificial intelligence and machine learning because we think that's like most companies, that's a critical part of our future. So really drilling into that. And for that area, it's really about industrialized because accounting software is such a rich area for those kind of tools. It's just building our capacity to do that well at scale as well. And there's a lot to that, right? I think people fall into trap in thinking it's all about algorithms, but actually it's a lot about engineering and data engineering. Also a lot of ethics and other thinking you have to apply to it as well. Those are probably three
0: areas just off the top of my head. It's been fun talking. If- People want to continue the conversation. Where do they find you? I've got a series of
1: Medium articles and pages that I try and do pretty regularly. If you look, there's a Humans at Zero a set of Medium pages, and I'm one of the authors on that. I've also got my own Medium site as well. So that's probably the best place to contact me. Yeah, it's been really good talking to you, Shane. I really enjoyed the conversation.
0: Thanks very much. Good day, folks. This is Shane Hasty for the InfoQ Engineering Culture Podcast. I'm sitting down today with Heather DeSantis from Publicity for Good. Heather, welcome. Thanks for taking the time to talk to us today.
2: Yes, I'm so excited to be here.
0: You and I have met and I got some advance information, but I'd love to hear a little bit about your story. What's brought you to where you are today?
2: I am the founder of Publicity for Good. And we are a purpose-driven company that aligns with companies and brands that are making a difference in the world. And we're really passionate about ensuring that the world knows about their brand through publicity. And it's so interesting in that my DNA is being an entrepreneur. I was a Girl Scout until I was 18, and I sold the most amount of Girl Scout cookies every year. So I was that girl at your door getting you to buy cookies. My dad and uncle were both entrepreneurs, very successful in real estate, building a lot of net worth. And I saw, gosh, people being humble, growing businesses and what that can provide for my family. But my dad and uncle both passed away. My dad actually passed away on Christmas, my senior year of high school. And when I thought about my future and I thought about legacy, the only thing I knew to do was to become an entrepreneur and really leave a legacy and create a sense of freedom and impact for my family. And I went on to college. I did an intensive really studying philanthropy and how businesses can make a difference. And I did an intensive at Georgetown. And that's where I really learned the power that people can have to make a difference, to build a company that not only you know really makes a difference, but really their team members and employees are happy, that's really where I knew I wanted to create something special. And it's interesting. I started out at an investment company. I actually got my series six where I would meet with people and talk about their financial goals. But I quickly learned I had a passion for people, but I really had a passion to be an advocate for causes and stories that I believed in, which is really how I got involved in publicity and you know, that's really the story and where I got my start. I've been a publicist for almost a decade, which I'm so proud of. I think when you find what you're passionate about in the industry that you know that you're meant for, you just truly become obsessed with it, knowing everything, studying trends, being ahead of the curve, and just being the best that you can be at what you're doing.
0: This sounds really inspiring and wonderful. And I love the idea of how businesses can make a difference, but businesses have been incredibly disrupted over the last, we're sitting here, it's the end of March, 2021. What does publicity for good look like in a disrupted world?
2: My gosh, I remember when the pandemic first hit, our business literally in like one day went down to half of what we were from a financial level and that people were afraid and they didn't want to invest in extra services such as PR. They didn't. So we felt that right away. And at the time during the pandemic, my husband and I, literally, our team has always been virtual. So we've been virtual for five years. So knowing how to do Zoom and connect with people and run business was really normal. But what was interesting is we were actually building our business from a 23 foot Airstream. So that's a very small space to be building a business. So we were greatly impacted from the pandemic. But what I can tell you is when we look back at the end of last year, our business has doubled. We are now almost a full-time team of 30 employees. Last year was our first year that we hit a million dollars. And I think that grit and that focus came out of survival and wanting to prove it and wanting to make it but then also knowing that for companies who would continue to forge ahead and tell their story and about their product it would be those companies that i believe that would come out stronger than the companies that got afraid didn't invest and just stopped what they were doing so from a pandemic perspective yes Our business almost overnight, we lost a lot of our clients. But really, figuring out our systems, connecting to as many people as possible, working internally, we have been able to scale.
0: So, that's actually grown the business through that period. Purpose driven. I'm going to be the cynic. You know, we've got these lovely posters on the wall in our organizations. But when things get tough, does the purpose still carry through? We care about our people but we're going to stack rank them and drop the last
2: 30%. To me, it really comes down to two things. Number one, are your team members intentional? Are they the right good-hearted people? Are you connecting with your team members on a transparent level? I mean, knowing everything that's going on in the world, knowing that they're fighting with their wife, knowing their struggles, knowing if one of your employees, their wife had a miscarriage, like everything is connected you know, personal life impacts business life, business life impacts personal life. So when I say purpose-driven, it's how are you treating your employees? What does that look like? Do you have a transparent relationship? For us, we started doing profit sharing. It's not about me. It's about our team members. It's about our clients. And it's really about us really working together, but also having that transparent conversation of, You're not pulling your weight, but being able to have have those direct conversations and that at the end of the day, people are people, you know, and if I get frustrated with an employee, well, it's my responsibility because obviously I haven't explained myself enough or explained it in a way where you truly understand. So when I say purpose-driven, it's about the culture. It's about your team. I know that we have a lot of full-time team members in the Philippines and they have freedom now. Moms can work from home. We have a for good component as a company, but to me, it's so much more than financially giving back. Yes, we financially give back. My husband and I give money away privately. I don't ever want to talk about what I'm doing, giving back in a big way, because I think you can make a difference privately. But again, I think you have to have a for good component if it's aligned. It shouldn't be something you do just to get more press or a marketing scheme. Some companies I see, though, do add it into their cost of goods and they're making a difference. Like, if your company is truly making a difference in a local community and it's helping 500 women find jobs, you know, like, great, it's helping lives. So, I think it really comes down to the intention. Is it pure? How are you treating your team? Like, if you're giving away money to an organization and you're not treating your team members, great, like, That's a problem.
0: What is this, I'm going to try and wrap this up in a single term, humanistic work culture look like, feel like?
2: Gosh, I mean, it's coming as your true messy self. It's full transparency. It's that when you show up during the day, you can't compartmentalize your life in that at all times, you're a husband, you're a boyfriend, you're a volunteer in your local town you're a project manager, you're an IT guy, you always have these hats on at all times. So to me, it's a more blended life. And for transparency for us, I mean, on our team calls every single day, we talk about where we were uncomfortable. We talk about where we need support. We give thanks for where we're gratitude. We have book club as an organization, and we have team members that are across the globe in the US and in the Philippines. And it feels like a family. And that I know that when I pay my employees, I know that I am funding Amanda to have teepees for her daughter's birthday party. I know that Liberty is able to have an amazing Christmas for her son. Like we know what drives our employees and all those things. So to me, that's really the big picture is that it's about our clients. It's about the impact we make. It is about the bottom line, but it's also how as a team do we win, which profit sharing is exciting because we're in the trenches together. It's not just me.
0: How does an organization that doesn't have this culture in place, or maybe not a whole large organization, but let's talk about our audience, a team leader working in the technical space, getting inspired by this idea of let's make this culture better where do I start? How do I lead my people along this journey?
2: So I think it starts with you and the listener and it's reflecting of how much of myself do I share with my team members? So example, you don't feel good. Do your team members know that? Do they know that your mom is sick? Do they know the other things going on in your life that are impacting how you show up? So if you're going to get on a call with a team and You don't feel good or you had a bad night or you're struggling. It's showing up and be like, guys, I'm not myself today. I don't feel good. I just got in a fight. I'm telling you. So you don't interpret how I'm being right now that there's something wrong with you. I'm not okay today. And I'm just telling that so you understand where I'm coming from. And I think that's the power when you start transparently sharing. It allows your employees and your team to share it transparently as well. Because a lot of times performance of team members, there's other issues going on in their life that you don't know about, or they don't understand the why, or they don't understand what you're saying. And it's really a matter of not understanding you. So at the end of the day, I think it follows, it's our responsibility.
0: This sounds great, but I know in many organizations, there's an overriding element of almost a fear How as a leader do I make it safe and how do I do this manage upwards as well?
2: So it definitely starts with yourself as the leader. And if you have not been transparent with your team, it starts there. So you could start sharing transparently with your leadership team about how you're feeling, what your triggers are. You guys, you know what? I haven't said anything, but I'm struggling because the team's not performing Sharing your truth. And then, you know, once you feel comfortable maybe sharing that with your leadership team, it's really sharing with your whole team. And it starts with you. I have found that when I start showing up for our internal calls and I'm just transparent and I share vulnerability from me, that our team members feel safe that they're not going to get fired. They can be themselves and they can share because not every single day is going to be productive for team members. Like you don't know what's going on in their lives. And I truly believe that every team member has pure intentions and it's really your job to figure out maybe it's not a good fit for your culture. Maybe you haven't done a good enough job really painting the picture for them of what's possible or even to maybe they're performing based on their level of how you perceive them. So it's really having those transparent conversations and see you, the leader, starting yourself and maybe journaling if that works for you or just figuring out what are your triggers and what have you not shared with your team so you can really start sharing. It's not going to happen until the founder or the leader does it. And then the pack will start doing that and then that will really transform.
0: You mentioned that your company has been completely virtual from the beginning. How do you make sure that the safety, transparency, openness really does come through in a virtual environment? I'm guessing, and correct me if I'm wrong, that there's probably some people that you've seen in the Philippines who you've never met in person. Is that
2: the case? It is the case. I have one of my team members who's been working for me for three years. Our team's actually going to be going to the Philippines this fall. So excited for that. But I would say for us, it's that we have team morning meetings every single day. They're video. In our morning calls, we have time for where we were uncomfortable, what we're grateful for. We share personal wins. We share business wins. We all are really a family. We highlight team members every single day. So team members actually have started making PowerPoints about themselves. And it's fun. They get to share about their passions and who their kids are and about their wife and how they met their wife. And that's really fun to see people on a different level. We have a book club, which is really fun. And it's just a time for us to connect and talk about a book and talk about our struggles on a personal level. But when you work, you spend so much time with your team and getting the job done that it's really important to have that as a part of your culture. And then on a personal level, we have one-on-ones with our team members every week. And those one-on-ones, it's about business and performance, but it's like, hey, Shane, like, how are you doing? What's going on in your world? And it's just connecting with you on a human level, in addition to the job and performance as well.
0: If we may, tell me a little bit about some of the four good work that you've been involved in and your organization's been involved in.
2: It's incredible. A lot of our companies, very intentional food brands, so they have certain certifications, whether it's non-GMO or the way the meat is raised is humane. A lot of our companies started out of a mother's need for a product, whether it be a mother who had a husband that was in the military and she couldn't have kids and she really struggled with the supplements in the market. And then she created this amazing company and now she has a beautiful family. It's really all these amazing people that have started businesses out of a personal struggle. And then from there, they've added different components. So based on what the cause is that made them start the business, they may add a personal financial give back to the organization. They may partner up with them really all those things, to even a group that helps veterans get their benefits. We're working with a lot of advocates who are truly making a difference.
0: And as those organizations grow, how do they maintain that focus on the purpose?
2: On the for good, I've seen a lot of clients be very intentional about their team culture bringing on the right people who already have aligned values for us. And I feel like for the majority of our team members and employees, they work for publicity for good because of our aligned values and wanting to have a job that truly cares about making a difference in the world. And I feel like we have that same alignment with our clients and that they have employees that are like-minded and that they want to make a difference. And then on a personal level, they encourage their team members to volunteer and live a full life and just do things that really make a difference.
0: Heather, if people want to continue the conversation, where do they find
2: you? So you can go to publicityforgood.com or you can find me on social media at Heather DeSantis.
0: Thank you so much for taking the time to talk to us today.
2: Thank you.